Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's happening here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm glad you're here, and I need to explain why I'm wearing this enormous bandage on my face. Uh, About two years ago, I had a malignant melanoma on my shoulder blade, and it was, uh, they graded it as a stage four, so they assumed it had already metastasized somewhere in my body. So after a couple of surgeries, they were able to determine it had not in fact metastasized, so we had good news. But from that, I have to do a, a screening every six months. They, they uh, scan me, you do this thing, you know, let's do that. And then they do the CAT scan, PET scan. Some of you are familiar with that world. Well, they did find something on my, on my neck, and so I thought it was gonna be kind of a simple procedure. You just go in, you put a Band-Aid, we're done. Uh, well, it ended up being a little more involved than that, as you can see. So I had that on Friday. So I thought, good, not I can't call one of my guys on Friday and get them to pinch hit for me. I'm just gonna look like a head wound Harry when I walk out there. So here I am, here we go. We're all good, so far so good. So we'll see how all that turns out. I'm not worried about it, we're good to go. But uh, I'm glad you're here. We've uh, done this before without anybody in the room and it's so much better to have you here. And uh, I'm glad that you're here. Thankful for all of you who are watching us online. We're in a new series, we're calling it Fishing 101. And we're doing that because Jesus set the metaphor that one of the things that a church is to do is to we're to be fishers of people. We're to do our best to reach people who do not yet know Jesus. That ought to be on the, on the leading edge of everything that we do. And Jesus gave this enormous principle that we do this more effectively when we do this together. Now Jesus was a fisherman. Uh, Luke 19.10, the son of man came seeking and saving those who were lost. His primary purpose of coming into this world were to reach people who did not know him and did not know his father. But he limited himself in a body. John says the word became flesh and tabernacled, (laughs) dwelt among us. So if Jesus, uh, the fisherman, he was limited in a body so he could only catch one fish at a time. But he said in John 14, when I go away, the works that I'm doing now, you're gonna do greater works than these. Now when you read that, you think, how in the world could we do greater things than Jesus did? He raised the dead, he healed the sick. I mean, he did amazing things. How in the world could we do anything greater than Jesus did? Well, he didn't mean greater in might, greater in might. You can't do mightier things than God. Listen, he meant greater in measure. He meant that there's going to be more of us here to do what he did. And so in that idea, that context, we're going to do greater things than he was able to do. There's more of us now. So this idea of being fishers of men now goes from being someone using a rod and reel to someone who uses a net. And this morning, I want to talk about this idea of the art of networking, the art of networking. It's a fishing term, and it really adequately describes what a church is supposed to be all about. We do it better when we work together. By the way, God didn't create us to go through life independent of other people. God made us as relational beings. You need me, I need you, we need one another. God created us that way. Now, oftentimes when you get hurt in life, the tendency is to insulate and isolate. You pull in, you pull away. But psychologists will tell you that's an unhealthy thing to do. Now, you may need to do that for a little while while you're in recovery, but eventually you need to emerge and re-engage because you need people in your world. 
In fact, in Romans, he said, none of us live to ourselves alone and none of us die to ourselves alone. Healthy people develop healthy relationships with people because God designed us to be interdependent upon one another. It's a principle in business. It is a principle in church. It's a principle in life. And so we are to work together. And that's really what a church is. A church is a net that God uses to reach people. Now think about that as we read this verse, uh, Hebrew, uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter four, verse 11 and 12. The Bible says, Jesus gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now let me stop and give you context. The context of what Paul's talking about is that in the church, God gave gifted people to provide leadership and training for the membership. So there's gifted called people that are placed within a church body uh, to do ministry. Uh, when you look at the role of a pastor, which is what I do and many others on our team do, uh, it is a, 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 um, a job description that is defined with three Greek words. Uh, the first Greek word is poimen in the Bible, poimen. Uh, we get shepherd from that. Well, a shepherd leads, a shepherd feeds, a shepherd guides sheep right? That's what a shepherd does. So part of the job description then of these gifted leaders in Ephesians 4 is to lead, guide, feed sheep, poimane. Second Greek word is presbyteros. Uh, we get the word presbyterian from that. Uh, it means elder. It doesn't mean that you are older, though now I would qualify, but it means that you are spiritually mature. It means that the role of a pastor, a leader, someone in the leadership of a church needs to have some level of maturity, spiritual maturity. So lead, God feed sheep, uh, be spiritually mature, poimen, uh, poimen, presbyteros. The third one is episkopos, episkopos. Um, uh, we get uh, epi is to over, skopos is to see, oversee, overseer. Uh, we get the word bishop from that idea. Episcopal comes from that idea. It's the idea that the role of a pastor is a, as a shepherd, as an overseer, as a spiritually mature person. So Paul is just reiterating that in this construct called a church, God has given certain gifted people to provide leadership. Now here's what they do. Notice the next part of this. They're there for the equipping of the saints, for the equipping of the saints, meaning that they're there to help people discern and determine what their purpose in life is. The biggest job that I have is to help people understand why they're here and what God has them here to accomplish. Purpose. Understanding that God created us to be in relationship with us, and you can't really, I don't think, effectively determine what you're here to do if you're disconnected from the one who created you. It's like you're gonna be a little out of sync because you aren't really connected with the creator. So one of my primary purposes as a pastor is to try to get you connected to the creator. I want you to know God. God apart from religion, God in your relationship to Jesus. And so once you're connected with the creator, then the second part of that is trying to discern, what does he have me here to do? Ecclesiastes 3, uh, to everything there is a, a, a time, a season, and a time to every purpose under heaven. Life is seasonal, and in the seasons of life, God gives us time for purpose. As long as you have purpose, God gives you time. When your purpose is over, your time is up. But as long as you're here, God has a reason for you being here or he'll just call you home. <laughs> so once you've connected with the creator, next thing is, what am I here to do? What is my purpose? How do I fulfill that? So part of the role of a church and the role of pastors within a church is to help equip people, help you understand your purpose in life. And then he went on to say it has a twofold effect. 
He said, it's for the work of ministry and for the edifying or the building up of the body. Meaning that when this is done right, a church ministers. A church has a way of helping each other. A church has a way of being a positive environment where, where good things can grow and positive great things can happen and it builds up. It, it, is a, uh, it is an edifying experience. So this is the role of a church. This is the role of the pastors. Now the reason I, I picked this text for our thinking as we're talking about the art of networking is in this word equipping. Equipping. It's a fishing word. The first time you see this Greek word used, you see it used in Matthew chapter 4. And the word equipping is this word, mending, mending, same word. In fact, look at, with, look at it with me, Matthew 4. And going on from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, and note what they're doing, mending their nets. And he called them, equipping, mending. One of the first things you have to do if you're going to be effective in reaching people as we use these nets is you have to mend the nets. Now what is a net? This is gonna be really profound. A net is a lot of little individual things that's tied together to create a corporate thing. Isn't that deep? That's a net. What is a church? It's a bunch of individual people that are tied together, we're connected to one another to create a network. That's true of your business. When you hire employees, they come in as an individual and you tie them into your organization because they become a part of a network. And one of the things that happen in a network, whether it's in your business or in the life of a church, is the nets have to be mended. Why? Because if you use a network, it breaks. Nets break. Every net that is used will break. I don't care how strong the individuals are. I don't care how well tied in to the structure they are. If you use them long enough, they break. Can I, would you agree with this? Anything you use a lot will break. Is that another? I'm telling you, I'm full of really deep thoughts here this morning. Anything you use a lot will break. You use your heart, it'll get broken. You cannot lead with your heart. You cannot be in a relationship and give your, put yourself out there. You can't do it consistently, continuously, and at some point, it not break. You can't go through life unscathed. Jesus said it is impossible to live your life without offense. Now, don't be easily offended. <laughs> My dad used to say, if you don't want your little feelings hurt, don't have little feelings. <laughs> you got to be bigger than that. So I'm just saying, don't be easily offended, but you can't go through life not being offended. How many of you guys, don't raise your hand, but how many of you guys have been offended already today? You know what is offensive to me? When my alarm goes off. Offensive. I mean, they even call it an alarm, right? I mean, that's even a distressing word, alarm. You wake up to an alarm, you know. I mean, it's just, it, it, your day starts out, you're offended before you get out of bed. All I'm saying is you can't go through life and not be offended. Your heart is going to be, and what do you do with anything that's broken? You have to mend it. Hearts get broken. Relationships break. I mean, if you use that relationship and you're involved with somebody, eventually, man, that relationship is going to get strained. I mean, there are no perfect relationships. No perfect marriages. I tell young couples all the time, marriage is the end of your trouble. It's the front end. You, you, can't have, you can't be in a relationship with somebody and think the net never breaks. Are you kidding me? 
You, you can't have a business and think it's never, you can't have money and think it's never. Anything you use will break. So what do you do when it breaks? You just throw it away, oh, that's bad net. Move on, get me another person. I forget about it, I'm not gonna rely on my heart anymore, I'm done with that. No, you mend the net. You mend the net because the net is valuable. You mend the net because the net is necessary. You mend the net because you're not gonna be effective at what God has called you to do without it. So when it breaks, mend it. And so here are these fishermen doing the thing that they are designed to do, and one of the things that they are doing is mending. They are tying those individual strands together again. Let me give you a beautiful picture. It's on down in that same chapter of Ephesians 4. It's verse 16. It says again, from God, this whole body. Now let me stop. The body is speaking of the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, he calls the church the body of Christ. Remember, there's more of us. We'll be able to do more than he did because we're now his body, but there's more of us. There is the universal body of Christ. That is the body that is comprised of every person, any place on the planet who knows Jesus. You're in the universal body. There's a body that is local. You're in one right now. You're watching one right now. This is the local body of Christ. But he's saying this body, this representative of Christ on the earth, from him, this whole body, note now, joined and held together. How is a body joined and held together? How's a corporate body like this joined and held together? Let me tell you how it's not joined and held together, by something called uniformity. Some pastors and religious leaders think the way you hold a church together is through uniformity, meaning we have to look alike, think alike, believe alike, act alike, we have to be alike. And sadly, some religious leaders present themselves as the standard by which everyone else is measured. <laughs> Terrible mistake. But it's not uniformity. Now let me tell you where uniformity works. Uniformity works in the military. You have to have uniformity. Uh, a, a, a preacher friend of mine was telling his life story. He said, I was going through this rebellious phase in my family. He said, I was so angry at my dad. He said, finally, I came in one day and I told my dad, I'm tired of you telling me when to get up and when to go to bed. I'm tired of you telling me what I can do and cannot do. I'm tired of you telling me how to cut my hair and who my friends are. You know what I've done? And dad said, what? He goes, I've joined the Marines. <laughs> Smart boy. By the way, thank God for the Marines. But I'm just simply saying that that's uniformity. And uniformity is necessary in that type of organization. But the church is not held together by uniformity. The church is held together by unity. Unity amidst diversity. That's the beauty of it. Only God could bring so many people together with such divergent views on almost any subject you want to tackle and create unity within the body. In fact, in Ephesians 4, he calls it the unity of the Holy Spirit, meaning that's not something I can generate. I can't make this person get along with that one and this one love this one and that one pray for the other one. Only the Spirit of God. Now, what I'm called to do as a pastor is protect that unity. Now, we protect it, but we can't create it. So he's saying what holds the church, don't, I hadn't lost my place here, in Ephesians 4.16, what is holding this together, note now, is by what every joint supplies. Now again, the body principle. He's saying what holds, think about your physical frame. What's holding us together are these joints. Just use my hand. What's holding my hand to my body is my wrist. That's the joint. It's the connection point. And the reason my hand is healthy is because it's receiving from my body the supply that it needs to function. 
So my hand is receiving something from my body that makes it healthy so I can respond and help somebody. So as I receive, I can give. I, I, I can't give if I can't receive. So you can't give what you don't have any more than you can come from where you've not been. And the point of that happening is the joint. It's the connection point. It's where the string is tied into the net. Are you tracking? So if the string is not tied into the net, it cannot receive ministry, and conversely, it can't give ministry. So the power of what Paul is talking about here and how a church functions is every joint receives what it needs uh, through these connection points, or every part of the body, rather, receives what it needs through the connection point. And by the way, on that body principle, there are no unimportant parts. In, Rome, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul said, look, no healthy eye ever looked at the hand and said, I don't have any need of you. Meaning that no healthy person ever looked at any part of their body and said, I don't need that part. I told him this morning, I said, man, you ever got up in the middle of the night and kicked your little toe on something? And you have visions and you hear voices. And all of a sudden, that little toe, listen, it, that, that little toe becomes the most important thing on your whole body. If you could contort yourself in such a way that you could put that little toe and suck on that thing in a little bit in your mouth, you'd just love on, wouldn't you love on your little toe? Is it just me? Y'all leaving me hanging this morning on this thing. <laughs> Hallelujah. Got one over here, but I got a brother here. I need sympathy. Look at my neck. Now, how about sympathy? Are we good now? Everybody got me? Okay, you got my back now. My point is, there's no unimportant parts. You've never looked down and said, I don't need that toe. I can balance on four as easy as five. So what's the analogy? What's he talking about? He's saying no healthy church, no healthy Christ follower, no healthy business ever looked at one person and said, you're not necessary. Everybody's important. Everyone is significant. And the significance is seen when it's tied into the rest of the body. I mean, the reason my hand doesn't freak anybody else out is because it's connected to my arm. Now, if my hand's just laying up here on the thing, like it, like thing, right? On, what was that, uh, Adam's family? Thing, remember that? Oh, man, I've really gone out now. That's a thing, kids, Google that. There was a show called Adam's Family and it had a hand running around disconnected from a body. And I'm just saying, that freaked everybody out because there wasn't a connection point. So I'm saying, part of what pastors do in equipping the saints is get you connected because we want you to receive ministry so that you can give ministry. We'll be effective fishermen if we keep the net mended. I think I've just beat that one to death. I think you got it. Let me go to the second thought. The second thing is not only mending nets, but the second thing is in Luke chapter five, verse two, washing the nets. You gotta wash these nets. The Bible says he saw the water's edge, two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. Listen, beautifully mended nets when they're put in the water, will get dirty. If you use the net, it's gonna get dirty. Let me give you a life principle. You and I cannot walk through a dirty world and expect our feet to stay clean. Another deep thought. That's three if I'm counting right. You can't. What do I mean by that? I mean it's not possible to have a connection with your creator and live a life above sin. You can't do it. Some people would have you believe that once you've connected to the creator, that you can, atone, uh, you can attain a place called a place of sanctification where you don't sin anymore. Um, there are people who, who define sanctification as sinless perfection. And I'm going to tell you, that's a bad definition. 
If you want to know a good definition of sanctification, which I believe in, but if you want to go to a good definition of it, apply the law of first mention. It is a law of biblical interpretation, and that is when you find a word that is first mentioned in Scripture, see how the word is defined and realize the Bible will use that definition of the word throughout all the Bible, the law of first mention. And the first mention of sanctification is in Genesis where the Bible says after creation, God sanctified the seventh day and made it holy. He was talking about a day, not sin. What does it, sanctification mean? It means to be set aside, set apart for a specific purpose. Sanctification is a place you arrive to in your Christian faith where you know God has a purpose for me. He's, he's going to set me aside to, to complete that specific purpose. And when you're there, that's sanctification, is recognizing that reality. It doesn't mean you're not going to think things you shouldn't think say things you shouldn't say, do things you shouldn't do. I mean, every example in the Bible, the Bible's the most honest book. It gives good examples of good examples and good examples of bad examples. I mean, there are people in the Bible who prove beyond any shadow of a doubt my point that you can be connected with your creator and still sin. You remember in the upper room when Jesus gathered with the disciples for the Last Supper? And you remember, as they gathered in the room, there wasn't anyone at the door to help them as they would wash their hands or wash their feet. Now, the custom of the day is if you were hosting a dinner party, you would have someone at the doorway who would provide a basin and towel, a couple of basins and towel. One would be for the washing of the hands and the other for the washing of the feet. The reason the washing of the feet was important is because they wore sandals. And that day, when you walked on those dirty cobblestone streets, your feet would get dirty. And the custom, if you, if you look at that Eastern custom, the tables were about 18 inches off the ground. They had large pillows all around the tables. So when you would host a dinner party, people would sit at those tables 18 inches off the ground and recline on a pillow, and they would talk to their dinner guests. Well, if you're reclining on a pillow, your feet is going to be in close proximity to the face of the person seated next to you. So you're going to be interested in whether or not that person washed their feet at the door. Now, it's just real practical, but it's just very true. And that's why in John 13, when there's nobody at the door to do that, those disciples didn't even see it. They sat down at the table with dirty hands and dirty feet, and Jesus washes the feet of Simon Peter. You remember the story? Simon Peter said, oh, Lord, I'm not worthy. You can't do that. And here's what Jesus said. He said, if I don't wash those feet, I can't fellowship with you. Now, let me give you practically what he's saying. He said, I ain't sitting next to you with them nasty feet. Loosely translated, that's what he was saying. So he said, you guys, wash, your, wash those feet. Now, there's a bigger reason other than just the sanitary you know, purpose. And that is the fact that Jesus wants our hearts to be clean, our hands. As we walk through a dirty world, he wants us to keep short accounts, short accounts with each other, short accounts with him. I mean, what is the best basin to wash your hands and feet in to keep this fellowship with God where it should be? 1 John 1, 9. John said, if we confess our sin, he didn't say you, your, he said we, our. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Man, guys, that just means when we say things, do things, act in a way that we know we shouldn't have, all you got to do is say, God, I blew it, I'm sorry. Okay, it doesn't affect your relationship with God, it affects your fellowship with God. Remember he said, Simon, I'm not gonna fellowship with you with those nasty feet. Well, sometimes folks, that's all we have to do, we have to come clean, <laughs> another pun. We come clean with God and we just say, look, Lord, I, 
I'm sorry. I, I, that's how we, we mend, mend, mend a relationship with someone else. We clean that relationship. We come clean and we say, man, I'm really sorry. I overstepped there. I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't say it. I, I'm, I'm really, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. I didn't mean to hurt the situation. Don't want to hurt the relationship. So you, you, I'm saying nets get dirty. And to get the net where it should be, the net had to be clean. Now, there's a tendency, guys, when you clean the net, to not want to put the net back in the water. You say, I just got this thing clean. I got it mended. Why don't I put it out in the water again? It's going to break. It's going to get dirty. And so some churches think, well, I can reach this place in our growth, in our place where we don't have to put the net back in the water. And so they want to put it on the wall in the boathouse and just look at it. Well, a wall, a net on the wall in the boathouse isn't going to catch fish. God didn't design the net to go on the wall. He designed the net to get back in the water. So you have to constantly be mending. You have to constantly be cleaning. If you, if you don't give attention to the cleanliness of the net, fishermen will tell you a dirty net will scare the fish. You're not going to be effective of reaching people who don't know Christ if they don't see any difference in how you do business or they don't see any difference in how you live your life and how they're living theirs. I don't mean to look down at people or think you're better than anyone else. What I mean by that is you live as an example before them. Let them see your faith being lived out in your life. Remember that famous quote of Mahatma Gandhi to the sense he said, I might have become a Christian had I ever seen one. I've told you the greatest argument for Christianity is a Christian and the greatest argument against Christianity is a Christian. You got to keep the net clean. Are you going to scare some fish? <laughs> the third thing I'd give you is not only do you mend a net and you clean a net, but then the third thing you do, you got to put the net back in the water. They were casting the nets. You see that in Luke chapter 5, verse 4. Launch out into the deep, Jesus said, and cast the nets and cast them for a great catch. He said, you're going to be effective. You're going to catch. He didn't say put them out there so you can fish. He said put them out there so you can catch. I told you last week there's a difference between fishing and catching. <laughs> When you go fishing, that doesn't mean you're going to catch. He said here, when the net is mended and the net is cleaned, you're not just going to fish for people. You're going to catch them. You're going to reach people. And you reach people when they get reachable. And can I tell you, there's a lot of reachable people in our area. A lot of them. In fact, when you look at what Jesus prayed before he left in John 17, he said, Father, I don't want you to take these people out of the world. I just want you to protect them while they're in the world. The nets go in the water. We have to be constantly, constantly preoccupied with the fact that there are so many people out there who do not yet know Jesus. Good people, wonderful people. They just never made that connection with their creator. So on the leading edge, folks, of everything we do as a church, there has to be this desire to reach people who do not yet know Jesus. Let me ask you as I close this morning, what could you do this week to make a difference in the life of someone else. I mean, to come alongside of them and to make a difference. You see, I believe this about being an effective fisherman. I think we all need redemptive relationships. You see, somebody's not going to listen to you if they don't think you care about them. Someone has well said, rules, rules without relationship leads to rebellion. It's a parenting principle. And when you, have a, you don't have a relationship with someone, it's a little harder for them to trust you or to listen to you. But when you come alongside someone, particularly someone who's never accepted Christ, and you love them and you pray for them and you're a friend to them, sooner or later, sooner or later, they may be open to hearing what you have to say. 
So you want to be in a relationship with them so that when that point comes, you'll be that person that they trust enough to listen to what you have to say. We're not called to be lawyers. I've got a good friend that's a lawyer, got several folks in the church who are nothing wrong with being a lawyer, but he didn't call on us to be lawyers. Acts 1.8, he didn't say, you shall be my attorneys. What an attorney does is they argue their case. You know what a lot of Christians do? Argue their case. Well, let me tell you where you're wrong. <laughs> you may win the argument, but you'll lose the person. We're not called to be lawyers. He said you're to be a witness. What does a witness do? A witness expresses an experience. If you're called to, to, to testify in court, they want to know, what do you know? What do you see? What do you hear? What do you experience? That's all they want to know. When you're in a relationship with somebody, here's what that looks like. You can say to them, look, I don't know what this may look like to you, but let me tell you what happened to me. I was a point in my life, my heart was broken, I was disappointed, whatever your story is, and I found my faith to be the thing that sustained me during the darkest time of my life. And I don't know where you are, but let me tell you, it worked for me, and if it worked for me, I think it could work for you. Someone had described it this way. They said, sharing your faith is simply one beggar telling another beggar where they found bread. That's all we're doing. It's not rocket science here. We're just simply saying to people, there is a God who loves you more than life itself. He loves you more than you love you. You might not die for you, but he did. And I think as a church, we have to purposefully build bridges and relationships with people who do not yet know Jesus. We got to keep putting the net in the water. So what kind of difference could we make in the life of someone this week who doesn't know Jesus? Maybe an email, maybe a text, maybe a phone call. Get outside yourself and just say, hey, I just had you on my heart. I just want, hope you're doing okay. Hope you know that if it's a hard week for you, let me lift some of that from you. Let me help you through it. Let me give you this and we'll go. A good evangelist who's... Um, Ministry has spanned probably 50 or 60 years. Years ago, had a son uh, who died. And when he and his wife went through the experience of losing their son, it just shattered him. Some of you know what that's like. He talked about the experience as being, for a while, he said, I couldn't see the sky, I couldn't hear the birds, I, I, did, I just, I was numb, I couldn't feel anything. The anger at God, the disappointment at God, the, just the hurt that he was experiencing in life was, was paralyzing. He said he had a friend that owned a house on the beach and the friend said, man, why don't you just go, you and your wife, just go down there and just stay as long as you need to stay, just get away, try to put it together. He said, he went, he said I would walk down the beach and he said, I didn't even notice the waves. I, I, I walked down the beach and I didn't hear the seagulls. I walked down the beach, I really, he said, I was just, I wasn't living, I was just existing. And he said, one morning I woke up, and for the first time, he said, since my son had died, he said, I heard the waves crashing on the beach, and I heard the birds, and I saw things, and I saw colors that I hadn't noticed before, and the vibrancy of life. And he said, I told my wife, he said, honey, I think I'm ready to, I think I'm ready to go home and re-engage. He said he got back home after that experience, and he was trying to put it together in his head. What turned, what changed, what made the difference? And he got home, and that was back before email was real popular, so everybody would write, and he had a letter, and he was going through his mail. And as he went through his mail, he found the letter from one of his closest friends. And he opened it up, and he started to read it. And the friend said, man, I can't imagine 
I cannot imagine what you're feeling, and I'm so sorry. I can't imagine the depth of sorrow that you have to be going through now. He said, but I got up this day, and he said, I asked God, would he let me carry your grief and your sorrow for a day? Would he let me carry that, take that off of you and just put it on me and let me carry that for a day? He said, I looked at the date the letter was written and it was the very day that I walked out of that beach house for the first time without that cloud on me. I don't know what difference you can make or I can make in the life of someone else, but let's try. Let's make an effort. Let's just keep putting the net in the water. Let's keep loving people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge to get outside of ourselves and to get outside of this building, to put the net back in the water, knowing it's not perfect, it's going to get dirty, it's going to break, but it's the only chance we have of rescuing the people you died to save. Help us to make a difference in somebody's life this week. And for my friends, Lord, who may never have trusted you, they never have come to terms with it. I pray right now, right where they're sitting or right where they're watching, you, you just allow them to pray this prayer and say, Lord Jesus, with everything I know about me, I now trust everything I know about you. Come into my heart and forgive my sin. This is the prayer that I pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.